Are you ready to become awesomer? Hello, everyone. My name is Umar Hamid. I'm your host on the No Limit Selling Podcast, where industry leaders share their tips, strategy, and advice on how you can become better, stronger, faster. Just before we get started, I've got a question for you. Do you have a negative voice inside your head? We all do, right? I'm going to help you remove that voice in under 30 days guaranteed. Not only remove it, but transform it. So instead of the voice that sabotages you, there's one that propels you to much higher levels of performance and success. There's a link in the show notes. Click on it to find out more. All right, let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the No Limit Selling Podcast. Uh, today, happy to announce that we're releasing an app. It's called Mindset Boosters, and it gives you the power to decide how you want to feel or act in any situation. And basically, it'll be in the palm of your hand. And on a particular day, if you're not feeling the magic, it's going to show you how to tweak your mindset. So you go at a, let's say confidence goes down to a two that day, we'll get it up to an eight in like five minutes and go go sell something, make it happen. So we're going to put a link for that in the show notes. You can install it. It's free. You're going to love it. But today we have uh, two people that are experts in sales. And one of them is, is, is so intense about sales. To get a sale, he swam the English channel. Steve, welcome to the program. Thank you. Appreciate being And here. Kurt, being like, uh, uh, wanted to do one up better, he flew over the English channel to get a sale. It's amazing. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. So brilliant. So you know what's kind of interesting is, you know, I can just imagine, you know, a a market, you know, in Egypt, 3500 BC, and there's some dude selling camels. And there's another dude down the street selling camels. And dude two is doing way better than dude one. And he's wondering, what's he doing different? Like we've been selling for like forever. And uh, somebody had come across a, a sales training manual that was the original one for the NCR company. But they had to be ancient texts as well. So this is an art form we've been doing for a long time. But yet, it's still such a challenging thing to do, especially in challenging times. So today, what I wanted to do was to talk about the challenges in our current uh, climate. So we're going to look at nine challenges, how to overcome those in 2023. But before we get started, what we're going to do is, Steve, why do you think a lot of salespeople find it challenging to sell? Well, If I'm looking at them from the outside, I'm recognizing that most people don't define professional sales properly. And so as a result, everything else goes off the rails. Most people think the word sales means persuasion. And some people Mm -hmm. think it means tricking somebody, but it's somewhere in there. And that's not professional sales. And, And although persuasion may be part of it, that's not professional sales. Professional sales is about hitting a number by a certain date. So it's usually hitting a number at a certain date every month, every quarter. So to set yourself up for long-term success is not about one time convincing somebody to buy something. And I mention this because the skill that you think you need, if you think that sales about convincing, is how to sell. Everybody I've met knows how to sell because selling is easy. Have a conversation. But Hitting a certain number on a certain week is a different skill. I call it strategic pipeline management. Most people don't have that in the same way they don't have strategic time management. They just sort of maybe notice how much time everything takes, but they're not strategic in their time management in that same way that it's a different skill and they do different things. So they fail because they don't practice strategic pipeline management. 
Okay, so a couple of things. Number one, uh, where you went with that is not where I expected, but where you went, I think, is like spot fricking on, which is like uh, it's a business. It's about hitting numbers and doing it consistently, so you see the long term growth. I would not have defined it that way. I would have defined professional selling uh, inaccurately. So thank you for that, Kurt. Why do you think people have so much uh, difficulty selling? Like uh, this is a stat. I don't have it in front of me, but I'm going to make it up just as all good show hosts that, you know, something like 60 plus percent of salespeople have difficulty asking for the sale. They'll talk around it and, but they won't just say, dude, sign on the line or some variation of that. So why do you think sales is so challenging for so many people? Yeah, I think Steve hit it very much on it. It's like too many people think of sales as persuasion and trying to convince somebody. That's, that's a, I mean, there is nature to that, but but I think the best salespeople, they're, they're not trying to sell. We have to hit our numbers, you're right, Steve, but, but they're trying to serve. And so I'm working for a company now. I have to hit those numbers this quarter. That's very important. But many of the clients that I've worked with in many different industries, they will work with me repeatedly at different companies or companies I advise because they trust me. Some cases I've told them, this is not the right product for you. And so, you know, I, it's no problem asking for the sale if you actually believe that what you're selling is a, is a help and a solution to a problem they have. It's only hard to ask for that sale if I really believe that I'm trying to convince you into something that's not really gonna benefit you and I'm just trying to get the money from you. But if I think that my solution is actually gonna change your life or change your business, I, of course, that's easy to ask for. Brilliant, so uh, I'll give you my definition of that. Uh, I think ultimately at the end of the day, sales is about relationships and the most important relationship is the one we have with ourselves. And I think that uh, sometimes gets in the way of, uh, I think I saw this uh, stat somewhere. If a salesperson thinks $500 is a lot of money, they'll be more likely to discount the price when the client says, oh, that's too much. Oh, of course it's too much. Let me discount it for you. And uh, so let's play a game. And this is the game we're going to play. The game we're going to play is uh, nine ways to make salespeople better. And we might go into an overtime round. And what we're going to do is I'm going to start with Steve and you're going to come up with one way you think salespeople could get better. Give that piece of advice. Then we'll go to Kurt and that'll give me enough time to come up with something. And then we'll go around again and let's see how far we get. Okay. I don't know if this is cheating, but my first piece of advice is is maybe it's either one or five all in one, but I'll give it to you this way. I think that customers, all customers, including us salespeople when we're customers, have five questions in their head, whether or not they ask them. And those questions are sort of easy to ask, but hard to answer. What problems does the salesperson solve? What makes Mm -hmm. them different? What makes them better? What makes their solution ROI positive? And finally, why does the salesperson even think that there's an actual benefit? What is their point of view, as I call it. So salespeople anticipating that the customer is wondering those five questions and then spends the time developing great, impactful answers will arm themselves with these five value statements that'll help them dance through almost any sales conversation they get in. Love that. We're going to write that down. Especially the what makes us different part. Love it. Number two to you, Kurt. Yeah, I'd say helping uh, helping the, the, the client or the prospect realize they're scared of uncertainty anyways, especially with the market globally right now and, and helping them one, acknowledge that they're scared, but also by not making a decision, that is a decision. We've been talking about a problem, Mr. And Mrs. Um, you know, prospect, you acknowledge you have it, you think this is a solution. By not, by not choosing me or somebody else, then you're choosing to have this problem next year, the following year, the year after. Brilliant. 
So number three, I think salespeople have a relationship with money and sometimes that relationship is unhealthy. A good example would be uh, one of the exercises exercise I do is say, okay, I'm going to suggest to a group of salespeople what your annual income should be. I'm going to start low. I'm going to work myself high. Just notice what thoughts and feelings come up. And we start, you know, duh, 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 duh. Then we get to 100,000, 200,000, 500,000, a million, 2 million, 10 million. And then I ask them, you know, what did it uh, feel like when the numbers are way lower than you're earning right now? It's like, that's not me. What did it feel like when we got to what you're earning? Felt comfortable. What did it feel like when I said something slightly higher? Felt awesome. When I got a lot higher, then it's like, oh my God, I was thinking I'm working all the time. My kids will turn to drugs. And we start telling ourselves stories. And that kind of indicates our financial thermostat where it's set. So if your financial thermostat is set too low, doesn't matter how much sales training you have, you are going to gravitate towards that thing. And I think part of sales is getting a better relationship that you have with money. Thoughts, comments before we go to you, uh, Steve? One of my books behind me is the Millionaire Mindset, which talks about how we develop these um, thoughts about money from uh, from early on, and it and it impacts everything we do, and include including the customers we talk to about money, and uh, how uh, upset people will share all kinds of stuff except about money. So so I think you're exactly right on that one. But uh, so So to expand on that, number four to you. Oh, go ahead. So I had, when I, I, in 2008, I had this life-changing experience. I swam the English Channel. And what I learned about that experience was it wasn't just about so-called getting in shape. What it was, was there were three things that makes the English Channel the hardest open water swim. Cold water, really cold. Rough water, jellyfish. And what I've learned, and I launched a company the year after that in the middle of a recession, which is this company I'm working in now. And um, I learned that every big challenge always has cold water, rough water, jellyfish, water you don't want to jump into, water that makes you feel like you're drowning. Jellyfish are things you're afraid of and you would try to avoid. And so what you need to do if you're going to go after an amount of money you've never gone after, you've got to say to yourself, what is the cold water and the rough water and the jellyfish I'm going to encounter in that process, which I would not encounter if I was going after a lower number. And let me be determined to overcome those as opposed to having those as ready excuses in my back pocket. I've heard people define excuses as a well-defined lie, a well-planned lie. So we already know we're going to have cold water, rough water jellyfish. Let's plan for that. And uh, let's like, for example, as you're closing more sales, you run out of time to prospect. So how are you going to overcome that? That's the rough water. How are you going to change your time management to make that work? I love that. Uh, like in some movies, they have uh, you know the evil entity. You can't know its name because if you know its name, it loses its power. And if you know what the rough water is, what the jellyfish, just articulating it because most people just kind of hide from it. So it's like even scarier if they get to name it. Then they can like call up uh, Kurt and say, "Hey, Kurt, uh, here's the rough water for me." Or call up Steve. Here's the jellyfish. Uh, help me figure this out, and you will. So, Kurt, number five to you. Yeah, for me, I think it's it's you know help, helping the salesperson connect with the customer's values and what's going on in their lives. And so, Steve, to your point, kind of like that, there's rough waters at work. There's rough waters of things going on. There's often rough waters going on in people's lives as well. I mean, I look at you know one of the companies uh, you know I always start at. We we were moved, we were changing who was uh, working with us on the HR side. So we we're going to change to a PEO for uh, for uh, all of our payroll and whatnot. And um, I just kept getting hounded by the salesperson because he was just, he was thirsty for the money. 
thankfully I actually knew his boss, the regional, the, the regional VP. And I called him, I'm like, look, I will call you all when I'm ready. But if Daniel doesn't stop bothering me right now, I will choose a competitor. And um, now in that case, because I was friends, I was able to reach out. But things are going on often in people's lives where, hey, we, whether it's troubles at work, rough seas at work, or things are going on. Hearing what people are or where people are and then respecting where that's at and, and letting them realize you're there for them as people as much as you are for them as a person or as a business as well. I love that. And I, and I really like that, you know, uncovering the values because uncovering the values is such a, an important part of the sales process because if you're selling to the wrong values, you're not making the sale. And uh, in order to get the values, you need to have connection. So one of the questions that I love, I'm going to make this my uh, number six is not so much, Kurt, why did you do that? Why did you do that automatically gets uh, Kurt to bring up his defenses, whether he wants to or not. But how did you decide to do that? Customers always go, huh? And they actually, you can see them thinking about what was the process they used to come up with that decision? How did you decide to do that? And that gives salespeople such a valuable set of information about what's happening in the other person's world. And it also sets you apart from all the other salespeople because they're all about the why. And I know that's in vogue right now, but the how question gives you information you can use and help the client in a more significant way. Number seven, Steve. Okay. Well, I'm gonna, I was going to go with a different one, but because of what you just said, and I agree exactly with what you just said, you know, finding out, like, uh, asking people how they, how are you going to make a decision going forward to get a worse answer than the one you suggested, which is find out their past buying patterns, their oh, past huge. buying history. And I think actually when you want to avoid being a pushy salesperson, what's the difference between pushy and not pushy? The pushy person never asks about past buying patterns. They just ask, you know, are you going to buy this thing today? So, uh, but along those lines, I think it just in general, there are many sales opportunities for asking what I call a second level question. Let me give mm -hmm. you an example. Customer says to a salesperson at the end of a first meeting, I work as part of a team. I'll have to talk to them. Average salesperson says, oh, uh, can I go with you to talk to the team? But a second level question would be even more helpful would be to say, will you be recommending us to your team? Oh, well, if the person is going to recommend me to the team, that's a whole different story than if they give me a, and their hair is on fire with excitement versus, well, I don't want to bias the team. Well, that's that answer tells me, should I get involved uh, uh, with this? Should I try to present for them? Or, or, or another one is this, you know, we're currently using your competitor, but we hate them which usually triggers off the cha-ching, you know, a sound and you want to get a proposal. But a better question is, then if you hate them, how come you haven't already switched? Yeah. You know, so asking second level questions will help us understand a buyer's motivation and it will help us figure out what's the right strategy more than anything else. I love that. And I, uh, to follow up on yours, you know, uh, what do you hate about them? Yeah. Yeah, you probably vetted them when you bought from them, but maybe you changed, and that's why they stink now. Kurt. All right. Well, I mean, piggybacking on both what you said, I mean, it is important to know the whys, know the patterns. For me, I think every salesperson, almost at every stage in the discussion, they should be doing a hidden assumption audit. There are there there are things going on when, when your client says, this is their problem, this is what they need, 
This is how they make decisions. And, and for me, I mean, huge help at home with my wife, but very much so from a work perspective is, hey, when they're saying something, what are the assumptions behind there? Because that's often where those second level kind of questions come from for me is, gosh, you said this, but for that to be true, well, this has to be as an assumption behind there. And then some cases, just putting that out there, directly confronting it, but or asking questions around it. But I, um, And there may be one, there might be seven hidden assumptions, especially when you're starting that relationship. Oh, I love it. And I think one of the key ways of asking that is, uh, I felt there was a hidden uh, agenda underneath the thing you just said. Am I reading that right? And I love that. Am I reading this right kind of thing? And people either go yes or like, no, 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 not that. And they'll they'll go deeper. And that way it stops one from like assuming because if you guess right, you're like freaking amazing. And if you guess wrong, then it kind of breaks the connection a little bit. So I love that. Here's going to be number nine. I'm going to wimp out on this, but I think it's the most important out of everything that we've talked about. But it's one that everybody knows, so it's neglected. I think the number one thing that we need to make sure we do is building that rapport. It's the fundamental, the deeper the rapport. Oh, if you get it done really well, then you hear your uh, potential customer saying, I shouldn't be telling you this, but I don't make the decision. It's this is how it's made. Or So I think rapport, rapport, rapport is like so critical, not only in sales, but uh, right now you're probably taking someone in your family uh, for granted. And so if you take the time to match volume and speed of speech and uh, gestures that uh, sometimes I hear from people saying, you know, I was at one of your workshops and I started using that with my teenage son who used to talk to me and thought I was like Superman, but now it's like one word answers. And as soon as I started using rapport, we're having conversations again. And it's like uh, pretty magical. And if you can sell a teenager, your teenager, you can sell anybody. So we've got some time left. So Kurt, why don't I let you kind of uh, take the floor and uh, which direction should we kind of, what's something we should address as a trio right now that would help people in 2023 out, salespeople? Well, I, I mean, I actually like how do we get to that rapport a little bit? Because for me, what I, you know, we may each have different tips about how do I actually get to that or how do I know that I'm there? To your point, when I get that example, it comes back somewhat afterwards. I know I had the rapport I was connecting before. I'm looking for often in that conversation, you got that right. Like those words, oh, yeah. repeating to somebody the problem, the solution, or what's going on. When should I call you back? When I get interrupted and, and whether it's my wife or the prospect tells me, you got that right. Like, th like there, there's not anything better I can get than that, than actually getting the check in the mail. I, I, yeah, I love that. And of course, if you get the shut the hell up, that's from your wife. That's not good. No. <laughs> the Steve, uh, what would you like to share? You What's know one what? thing I'm also going to leverage off on, you know, there's, there's an intuitive common sense, uh, rapport, you know, people buy from people they like, you know, that's those kind of rules I think are true. How do you develop rapport in the end? Like, what's the mechanic? What's the formula? You got to meet people more than once. So the average person that I talk to, and I've trained 50,000 people, and since I do pipeline management, I've looked at 50,000 pipelines a million times, and what, what's the biggest problem with people? Their prospects don't have a next step. So they meet once, and they don't have a next step. Well, if you want to have a rapport with somebody, the more times you get together, the more the it changes everything. You know, you're you're a total stranger the first meeting, the third time you meet each other, you know, your the quality of your conversation is different. So you talk to most salespeople who go, so tell me about yourself. Well, first I met, and at the end of the meeting, the customer kicked me out. But they didn't really kick me out. What they said was, 
uh, hey, interesting, could you get me a proposal? Which is a really nice way of kicking you out. So now you've had one meeting, no report, because you did all the talking, and now you're coming back with, you're not even coming back with a report, you're sending, you got a homework assignment and no next step. So what I realized when I first got into sales was, I got to start counting. If you want to improve anything, count. How many times did I go on a first meeting and have a scheduled next step? If I can't even get the other person to put my name in their calendar, why would I think they're going to send me a check? So how do, what is my ratio of getting people I meet to get? Well, I learned about myself that it was seven to one. But by changing the way I prepared for meetings, I was able to get it from seven to one to 1.9 to 1. 1.9 first appointments equals one scheduled. When that happened, my sales quadrupled, not by getting better presenting or negotiating, just getting better at getting people who saw me once to see me a second time. And I've applied that throughout the sales process. And as a result, I get more next steps. I'm much better able to position my sale that fits what they want because in the third meeting, they finally told me that thing that they didn't tell me in the first meeting, which I'm glad I, I finally learned. So Steve, uh, Kurt and I are both going to meet with you again once. So we want to, we'll bring that from 1.9 to 1.8. So uh, before we part company, uh, Kurt, you get to ask me one question and then Steve gets to ask me one question. Uh, what, what, are the two, what are the two KPIs that you look at most when you're coaching somebody to know whether they're on the right track or not? So uh, pretty much the, I'm only going to give you one because I'm a slacker, but I think it's referrals. Like how many uh, clients do you have? What's the percentage of referrals you're getting? Is it one-to-one? Is it three clients to one referral? And just working on that because that gives you, people only refer you if you're doing like a kick-ass amazing job. And so that's one of the measurements I like a lot that's is awesome. that. And uh, so that's the main one that I kind of focus on. Uh, Steve, any, uh, any questions? Yeah. You know, famously, according to studies that I've seen by Gartner and other groups, they say that the customers changed. They say that today's B2B customer is more like a consumer customer. They say that the customer, B2B customer, spends 50 to 75% of their time in their buying cycle. They're through 50 to 75% of the buying cycle before they even talk to a salesperson. So given that the, the customers now change as a new generation of customers, what do you think is the right way for salespeople to change their approach to be right for the new kind of customer and the new kind of buying process. I'm going to go to that old standby. It comes down to, at the end of the day to that relationship you have with yourself and with that customer. And that rapport is a really great way. And I like the questions you had. Like everything we talked about was getting clarity between me and another human being. And I think that the more of that we get, the more likelihood we have of making a sale, the more likelihood we are of having that second meeting, and the more likely we are to be braver to do those follow-throughs. I was at a, a sales team and this guy landed a sale and the boss said, you know, how many times did you have to reach out to this guy to get the sale? He says, 21 times. And he says, didn't he think he was a pest? He says, no, he didn't actually remember the, uh, the last 20. Just the 21st time I reached out, he happened to be in the right moment to buy. It was in real estate and I got the listing for this property. And, uh, and I think that's uh, tenacity is, is critical. And if you've got the right relationship, it's not seen as pestering someone. But if you don't have the right relationship, then it seem, uh, seem as, you know, hey, you're pushy. So before we part company, uh, Steve, uh, what's, uh, what makes you happy in your profession? What brings you joy? 
I am in a position now of helping other people make more money in sales and not just make more money, but just have a more satisfying career in sales or sales management. And I think sales management is a, is a wonderful opportunity to help people. I think salespeople have a wonderful opportunity to improve their lives, not just the amount of money they make. So I'm in a position to help. So my favorite thing is being able to help people make money, you know, not just close a sale they didn't think they were going to close, uh, but actually live a life that they didn't think they'd be able to live. And being able to be part of that process is the most gratifying thing to me. I love that because uh, ultimately at the end of the day, I think business has done more to improve humanity than than governments. And the tip of the spear are salespeople that make the revenue that makes that possible. Uh, Kurt, for you, what brings you joy in your work? Yeah, somewhat similar to Steve's is that you know, I'm in a place where I'm able to help salespeople, marketers, operators, those that are the, the, the top 1%, they can work anywhere they want and let them realize that like, don't go sell widgets. Don't go sell something that doesn't change somebody's lives. You should only, if you're good at what we do, um, you should only be working at companies or for yourself where you know that you're actually helping your clients be successful, not just at work, but because of that, be successful at home. Love that. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being on the program. I enjoyed the conversation. I learned a lot and I can't wait for our next conversation. Me too. Thank you so much for having us. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating. And if you're looking for more tools, go to my website at nolimitselling.com. I've got a free mind training course there that's going to teach you some insights from the world of neuro-linguistic programming, and that is the fastest way to get better results. 